Well, hello, hello, church. It's so good to see you this morning. How's everybody feeling this morning? Good? Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's so good to see you. If I've not met you yet, my name's Journey, and it's my privilege to be the pastor here. If you started coming at the beginning of June, it's probable that you've been here more than I have this summer. Uh, I uh, been out for a few weeks uh, taking care of my first ministry, which is my family. And so we, we spent about 10 days doing a little road trip down to Destin, Florida, drove down to the teeth of a tropical storm. But this Arkansas boy said, I don't care, I'm going to get to the Redneck Riviera. <clears throat> and so we did that. And then uh, immediately after that, I spent some time working on my second ministry, which is the church. Spent about four days uh, and something I do every year with a vision retreat, just spending some time in prayer, seeking the Lord. God, what do you want, what do you want to do in me? What do you want to do in our church? And uh, ooh, I can't wait to share some of that with you. That's going to be awesome. Um, but listen, y'all, I just, you, it's important that you know what your ministry priorities are. All of us have ministry priorities. Our family is our first ministry. And uh, man, the, the older that I get, the more I'm learning. If I don't put some intentionality into some of the things that I do, I'll forget some of the important things I'm supposed to take care of. And so, um, so I'm glad to be able to spend some time with that. Also, um, it's good uh, for y'all to hear from some different voices sometimes. Uh, it, you know, I'm glad, hopefully, you, you enjoy hearing what God speaks through me. But man, it's important that y'all hear from some different voices. And listen, I'll just tell you, it's important for me to remember that the church don't need me. The church will keep going even if I'm not here. And, and sometimes I just need to get a few weeks away just to be reminded my identity is not wrapped up in what the people in my church think about me. My identity is wrapped up in what Jesus thinks about me, and I, that's it. And so sometimes it's good for me to get away and, and to see what God does. So thank you, Tim, Chris, and Phil, for bringing the word. I'm thankful for you. I want to start today by asking you a question. Have you ever received an upgrade for something? I'm talking about, like, you didn't know it was coming, but you got an upgrade. Jessica and I, a few years ago, we were on an anniversary trip, and uh, we had uh, a couple legs to our flight to where we were going, and uh, we got on the plane here in Kansas City, and uh, uh, they were just getting ready to tack, you know, push the plane back from the tarmac and get in a taxi, and a, a, a flight attendant come up to us and said, uh, excuse me, sir, ma'am. Now, you have to understand, when it comes to travel at, at gigantor size, there's, there's not much travel that's fit for the full-figured man, okay? There's just not. And so anytime that I'm flying, I enjoy flying with Jessica because she's a wee little bitty thing. And so I, you know, I get to kind of use my space that I paid for and I get to use the space that she's not using that I also paid for. And so we got into the plane and she kind of slid in and I wedged in to my seat and uh, we were just kind of getting settled in. I would say get comfortable. I don't really get comfortable uh, on, on flights. And the flight attendant comes and says, excuse me, uh, uh, sir, ma'am, uh, somebody in first class has paid for you uh, an, up, uh, an upgrade for you to join them in first class. Would you like to do that? Now, I thought for just a second, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, has anybody in the history of time ever said no to that question? So that's what I was thinking. And I turned to look at Jess and Jess goes, well, that's a no brainer. Yes. And uh, it turns out there was a, uh, the parents of some good friend of ours uh, were also on an anniversary trip. They were sitting in first class and uh, they didn't go to our church yet. They do now. As it turns out, 
Whenever you go and start a church, the way to get a family to come to your church is to get them to first buy you a first class ticket on an airplane. Um, and so they don't know that I'm sharing this, so I'm not going to say who it is. I don't want to embarrass them. But um, anyway, so we got this upgrade, and it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was the best flight I have ever had in my life. I mean, I stuck my foot out and could touch nothing. It was awesome. And so we were just kind of in heaven and, and in the first leg of our flight. And we got in the second flight and then back to reality, you know, just kind of wedge in, just kind of thought about, you know, do I, do I rejoice in what happened? You know, the song, I try not to think about what might have been, right? Because that was in. And now we've taken different roads. And so anyway, most of the time we think of upgrades, uh, we think of something that's awesome, better, more luxurious, or more plush. Today, as we're going to find in Matthew chapter 5, you can go ahead and open your Bibles and get there. We'll get there in just a second. In Matthew chapter 5, um, Jesus is going to provide six theological upgrades, but I promise you they are not the comfy, the comfy kind of upgrades. Now, we're in our series this summer, a deep dive summer series called The Kingdom Manifesto, and this is a study through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in this series, here's what we're learning. We're learning what the kingdom of God is. We're learning how it operates, and we're learning how God's people should live in this kingdom. And we're studying this because when we read the word of God, we realize that there is an epic clash between dark and light, between good and evil. And whether or not you want to or not, you are caught smack dab in the middle of it. And so we are diving into this series, studying Jesus's manifesto so that we can understand from the king how it all works. I've titled today's message, Uncomfortable Upgrades, because that's exactly what Jesus is going to do today. And what we're going to read is Jesus steps into a moment in time where he is going to address six of the most hotly debated, hot button issues of his day. It would be the equivalent if Jesus were to walk into church today and said, here's the things I want to talk about. I want to talk about Black Lives Matter. I want to talk about LGBTQ. And I want to talk about how the church should respond to the government. There would be lots of emotions in that message. Hopefully a couple of notes taken and maybe a couple of things learned. But that's what Jesus does. That's the equivalent of what he does. And so he shows up and he's, he's going to bring some clarity to some of the things that are being debated, not just by the people, but by the rabbis and the scholars and the priests of their day. And as we dive in, I want to go back to a verse that we read last week that's going to be really important for us to understand what Jesus is going to do today. Matthew 5, 20, Jesus said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness, all of the right things that you do, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day who everybody looked at as like the closest thing to righteousness as possible, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And what we learned last week through an incredible message that Phil preached, um, we learned that Jesus laid down the law so that we can lay down the law, meaning that, that because Jesus came to fulfill all of the perfect righteous requirements of the law, by faith in him, we can lay down the requirement of the law in our lives because we can point to Jesus and say, he's my ticket. He took care of it. He fulfilled it. And it's his love and his grace that allows us to be able to stand not condemned by God, by his law. We're able to stand forgiven and experience his grace. In a continuation of this sentiment, Jesus is going to bring to light yet again one of the two primary themes of his 
kingdom manifesto. The two themes are that his kingdom is inside out and that it's upside down. Today, he's going to focus on the idea that his kingdom is inside out, meaning that he's not, he's not necessarily concerned as much about external righteousness, meaning the things that we do, how right we look, how godly we look, how pure we look to others by the things we say, the things that we do. What he's going to reveal is that he is concerned about something that is altogether different and altogether separate. And as he steps in to bring some clarity to these hot button issues, it's important that you and I remember that the Bible says that Jesus is the word. He is the one who authored the word of God. So he's gonna step into a moment where people are debating what God's word says. And as he brings clarity to it, I can promise you there are gonna be some jaws that would have hit the floor as he begins to explain what he meant by some of the things that he wrote. Some of the things that he writes that he's gonna talk about are gonna be shocking because it's gonna be not at all what people thought. For the scribes and the Pharisees, they're going to be shocked because that's not what they have come to believe. And for the everyday Joe, they're going to be in shock because what they have come to believe is dependent upon what the rabbis, the Pharisees, and the scribes have taught them. They, didn't, they were not able, most of them, to have a copy of the Word of God, the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. Most of them were not able to have a copy because it was incredibly expensive and bulky and cumbersome. And not only that, most of the Old Testament law was written in Hebrew, but by Jesus' day, most of the Jews didn't speak Hebrew, they spoke Aramaic. And so it would, be, it would have been written in a language that they couldn't understand. So the everyday Joe was incredibly dependent upon the rabbis, the scribes, and the Pharisees to teach them what God's word said. But here was the problem. By Jesus' time, they had begun to no longer primarily reference the law, the Old Testament, the word of God. Instead, they referenced something called the Talmud, which was a collection of rabbinic teaching of things that, that rabbis in the past have taken and learned from the law, learned from the word of God, and they've kind of put their understanding on it. And instead of the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day going to the original source, they were coming back to the secondary source, which highlights for us today the incredible significance and the importance for us to always go back to the word of God. It doesn't matter if you hear it from me. It doesn't matter if you hear it from your best friend, from your mama-in-law, from your favorite preacher, or for some book. And if it's on the internet, it's got to be true. So if you heard it from there, it's incredibly important that we understand that in all of our, our, our desire to try to learn and understand what God's word says, it's good. Find good resources. But always, always, always allow God to be the definitive final word. We've got to come back to the word of God always, always, always. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to bring some clarification, some direction. I also feel like I need to offer a little bit of a disclaimer. Brace yourself. Because it's going to be a bumpy ride. Because Jesus is going, he's not scared of stepping into some hot button issues and he's not scared of stepping into a little bit of controversy, not because he's trying to stir up controversy, because he is dead serious, literally, about your soul. And so he's gonna step into some things in their day that was complicated and controversial. And there's at least one or two things that we're gonna talk about today that are complicated and controversial in our day, but Jesus is gonna step right into it because God's word talks about it, we're gonna talk about it. And so we're gonna dive right in and we're gonna see what he has to say 
and upgrade number one when he talks about and addresses murder. Matthew 5, 21, if you're with me, let me hear you say kingdom manifesto. There you go, Matthew 5, 21, it says this. You have heard that it said, uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger. Raka is a Hebrew four-letter word. So it's in the Bible. I said it. Y'all don't even know what it means, so it don't matter. But I'm letting you know, if you want to say something and people, you know, just get it off your chest, you go, Raka. And just, you know, and then when they say, what'd you say? Just go, ah, just clear your throat. You're good. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, meaning the, the, the legal system. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of the hellfire. Now, this is crazy. I, I, I preached a whole message on this several months ago uh, when we were in our marriage series. Um, if I would have thought about that, I would have told you the name of it so you can unpack it. But Jesus starts with murder. Why? Well, because most of the Jews, when Jesus brought this up, went, I can check that off the list. I ain't never murdered nobody, so I'm good. We don't need to talk about this one, Jesus. Let's go on to the next one. I'm good. And Jesus goes, not so fast. What Jesus does is he takes the issue beyond what people do with their hands into the things that they think in their heart. And what he's conveying here is that in God's eyes, you don't have to be a murderer to be guilty in the sight of God of murder. If you accuse someone unjustly, if you come to your brother and say, Raka, you fool, then what, God, what Jesus is getting at is that there's something internally that always leads to the external action. And what he is saying, listen, my kingdom is inside out, y'all. Y'all are so consumed and concerned about what is on the outside, but I'm telling you that my kingdom is obsessed with what's going on on the inside. Jesus provides some instructions then. He says, if this is the case, if you have done this, if you've been in this situation, here's what you need to do. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar now, so they've come into the temple and they're getting ready to worship God. If you bring your gift to the altar and there, remember, your brother has something against you. Not necessarily that you have something against your brother, but you become reminded that your brother, somebody has something against you because you have wronged them in some way. This is what he says. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. And what Jesus is saying here in this instruction is two things. There's a spiritual instruction and a practical instruction. Spiritually speaking, what Jesus is saying is, listen, when you come into the temple, when you come into the altar, when you come into church, he wants you to praise him. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to come with hearts prepared to encounter the living God. But what he's saying is, is if you have come into this place and you remember that you've got some people that have something against you, he's saying, listen, your worship is going to be hindered because of what you've done. He's trying to convey the idea that, that the things that you do laterally and horizontally affect your relationship with him vertically. So he's saying, listen, Spiritually speaking, I, I would rather you go and reconcile. I would rather you go and make it right. Now, right about here, I was worried that there would be some people that would seriously take this and get up and leave. And you have my permission. If you need to get up and leave right now and go talk to somebody, go do it. I want you to do what Jesus says, not what Jern says. 
But then there's a practical part of it. He said, listen, and practically speaking, if you don't go take care of that and nip it in the bud when it's this big, then your adversary, the one that you have wronged, it's going to continue to fester and grow and fester and grow. And now homie going to take you to jail. So before your legal problems get worse, you need to go take care of it. Listen, I just feel like that's a message to some marriages that before things could become a legal problem, before it becomes a judge problem, before someone you don't even know starts telling you how and when you can spend time with your kids, ooh, you need to reconcile what's going on. Jesus continues in upgrade number two, and he addresses adultery. He says, you've heard it said, uh, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in, her in his heart. Now again, why does he address this? Well, most of the dudes are thinking, I ain't never done that. Check number two, I'm good, next. But when Jesus drills down here and gets beyond the action and gets to the heart, every single dude in the audience just went. No, baby, I ain't never. mm -mm. Only you. Only you, girl. Perhaps you're here right now and your heart sped up a little bit. Maybe your ears feeling like they're turning a little red. It's getting hot. Jesus is saying, listen, if you have even looked after somebody with lust in your heart, you might as well have already done it. We have this ridiculous statement in our society. Well, you know, I'm just window shopping. I can look. I'm not going to touch. It's not how it works. What Jesus is saying is that my people who live in my kingdom, you got to understand it's not just about the act of going and committing adultery. It's, it's if you've even looked after somebody. What he's trying to get at here is that he's moving beyond the physical act and he's addressing the small little things that begin internally. That if they go unchecked, will lead to adultery. He provides some very specific and vivid instruction on what to do if this is you. Notice what he says. He says um, in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And then I also think it's funny that he says, cast it far from you. Like, if you just go with me for a second, like, I just think about things when I read the Bible. I just think sometimes Jesus has a sense of humor, right? Like, pluck that dude out and then... I don't know what people then would, be, would have been thinking, but I've been thinking like, how many dudes in that audience would have been like Uncle Rico? I can throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Anyway, moving on. He says, and cast it far from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And cast it far from you. Now I'm just imagining competition. Hey man, which one can you throw farther? Your eyeball or your hand? I'm left-handed, so I think I can do it. Because he says cut off the right hand. There we go. We're awake. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish and for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now listen, it's important that we understand here Jesus is not literally encouraging mutilation. 
Instead, what Jesus is doing is he is providing a shock value, something that seems ridiculous, to illustrate a very not ridiculous point. That if you are are beginning to look after somebody with lust in your heart, you are on a bad road. And you need to take extreme measures to get off that road. Proverbs chapter five, six, and seven. Men, let me repeat this. Proverbs five, six, and seven. One more time. Proverbs five, six, and seven. Ladies, that's for you as well, but for mostly the dudes. Read it this week. And read the precision and the wisdom that your God has preserved for you in his word about the death that is coming to you if you keep walking down this road. So Jesus isn't saying literally go chop your hand off and and pop your eye out, but he is saying you need to take some extreme measures. In our day, I don't know what that means for you. Maybe for you it means you need to get rid of your cell phone. Maybe it means at least for a time you need to get rid of your and delete your social media accounts. Maybe you need to go spend 5 or $10 a month for uh, an accountability software like Covenant Eyes. Maybe the extreme measure you need to take is you need to request a transfer. Maybe you need to do something that's so ridiculous as handing off a client that you know is bad news for you to someone else, even if it costs you your commission so that you make sure it doesn't cost you your family. Jesus is saying, listen, you got to take some extreme measures here because this is a bad road and you do not want what is coming at the end of it. Upgrade number three, Jesus gets right into the thick of things when he talks about divorce. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, right about here is where most of the time the conversation goes, say, what now? What's going on here? Well, let me talk about what's going on uh, directly in Jesus' day. There was a debate in Jesus' day that stemmed for something that, that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 24 a long time ago. And this is what Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one says. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. There's a couple things that you need to know in order to understand what this is saying, in order to understand the controversy Jesus is addressing, okay? In, in that day, women were not considered equals with men. Matter of fact, most of the time, men, women were considered possessions, And so what Moses is writing is he is writing uh, something that, that creates a permission, something that God allows to be permissible but never commands in a situation where a man could pursue a divorce with his wife. Jesus would later say in Matthew 19 that, that the reason why God did this through Moses is because of the hardness or the sin in the hearts of humanity. Okay, And so the reason why he would write a certificate of divorce is because if a woman who was married was seen dating or fooling around with somebody who wasn't her husband, then she could be accused of adultery. And in that day, a woman caught in adultery was sentenced to death by stoning. 
And so they would write a certificate of divorce. It would serve as a security for this woman that if she has been divorced, she could have this certificate and say, listen, I was married, but I'm divorced. So don't stone me because I'm dating a new dude. Now, the controversy stemmed from the word that Moses uses here, that the English, my translation, translates as the word uncleanness, that if he finds some uncleanness in her. There were two camps. One camp said that the word uncleanness, that when Moses wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that what God was specifically in view of was adultery, and that was it. There was another camp, and it was a very prominent camp. It was the predominant camp of that day that said, no, 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 the word uncleanness, man, that's ambiguous. I mean, that can mean anything. Anything that a husband finds unsavory or unsatisfactory could be deemed as unclean to a husband, and therefore a husband really kind of has carte blanche to be able to write a certificate of divorce for any reason that he wants, And so in Jesus' day, this is a huge hot-button issue. The scribes and the Pharisees are incredibly divided over this issue. And so what Jesus does is he comes in and he always brings clarity. He says, listen, let me make it plain for you because I wrote it. Let me tell you what I intended. If any person divorces their wife, any man divorces his wife for any reason other than adultery, he, uh, he has committed sin and he has caused her to commit adultery as well when she remarries. Now, this moment where I feel like we need to take a little bit of a detour because I feel like it would be incredibly unloving to not explain what God's word says here about divorce. Let me tell you that my family has been ravaged by divorce. I come from four generations of divorced families. This is a subject that I have spent 15 years researching because it has visited me over and over and over again. And so what I want to do today is I want to spend, I want to take just a little bit of a detour and provide some biblical teaching on this. And let me just tell you, this is one of the things where there's a lot of good and godly people that disagree. But what I find to be helpful anytime that I'm uncertain about something that God's word says, I always fall back to what is 100% clear and then allow that to drive the conversation around everything else. Here is what is 100% clear. It is 100% clear that from God's word, that God's ideal marriage scenario was for one man and one woman to be in one marriage forever. In Matthew 19, when he teaches more on this, he says, listen, Moses provided you an opportunity for a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning, it was not so. He goes all the way back to creation. He goes back to Adam and Eve. And when you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you find that God creates Adam and Eve and they're living in perfect harmony. And the intent is for them to be able to live in harmony with one another in community with their God on purpose and on mission to fulfill what God had commanded them to do. That is the ideal scenario. And it was supposed to be like that forever. In Genesis chapter three, sin enters the picture. And when sin enters the picture, pain and devastation and misery and brokenness, and he said, she said, enters the picture. And when sin entered the picture, God's ideal was distorted. And from that moment on, from Genesis chapter three until today, 
Humanity has been living in a messed up, busted, and broken society. A society where God continues to offer his rule and his instruction while at the same time offering his grace and his mercy. And how do we measure these? How do we weigh these in light of what God's word says and how we apply it to our lives? Well, what else is 100% clear? It is clear that God permits, he never commands divorce, but he permits divorce in three situations. Jesus makes the first clear right here in Matthew chapter five that in the case of adultery, you are permitted to get a divorce. When we go over to 1 Corinthians chapter seven, we see that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings some additional clarity about marriage and divorce. And what Paul offers in 1 Corinthians seven, by the way, I hope you write these verses down. I'm not going to all of these verses and reading all of them because we don't have time, but I wanna give you the verses so you can go study it for yourself because at the end of the day, it's not thus says Jern, it's thus says the Lord. You go study it for yourself. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells us two additional places or two additional situations where God permits divorce and then remarriage. It's in the situation where uh, your spouse has died. God tells you that you are free from that marriage and you are free to go marry a believer. And the third instance is when an unbelieving spouse decides, you know what, I'm done. I can't be married to you Christian anymore. I don't believe like you do. We don't operate the same way. We got different worldviews. We voted for different people. We raise our kids different. We have our finances differently. I'm out. And what, what God's word says in 1 Corinthians 7 is that that is the case and you are married to someone who doesn't know Christ and they choose to divorce you, then God permits that and says you are free to remarry a believer moving forward. Now, there are two additional cases that is less clear in Scripture. There are good and godly people who disagree. I don't know many people who would disagree with what I've just taught you. There is some disagreement amongst pastors and scholars and people who study the Bible about the last two cases. There are good and godly people that I respect and admire the way that they teach and preach God's word that will say emphatically that this, these two are also included and there are people that I love and respect and, 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 and how they treat the Bible that would say absolutely no way. The other two cases are in the case of um, abuse, any form of abuse, and the last case would be in the, in the situation of abandonment or neglect, meaning that one spouse just says, you know, whatever, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm out, I'm just going to check out, um, I, I'm unwilling to meet your needs emotionally, physically, spiritually, um, you know, so I'm going to go to me and you, you do you. As I read the word of God, as I've studied this for the last 15 years, I, I, I've gone back and forth on these two. There are times when I see and hear the argument that, that scholars that I respect make and I go, I understand that. And then I hear the other side of it and I go, but I also understand that. So I'm not gonna tell you thus says the Lord. I'm gonna tell you thus says me. At this point of my life and my study on this issue, I have a hard time saying that either abuse or abandonment are grounds for divorce. And I'm okay if you disagree with me. I can tell you that any of these situations, the five that I've listed, are heartbreaking and devastating because I know that nobody walks into marriage 
looking forward to the day that it's over. And so I hope that you know when you can hear and you can understand my heart as we talk about this because I know it's a tough subject. And even though there is a little bit of ambiguity around these last two issues, what is clear on these last two issues is that it does not seem as if God permits a Christian to remarry if they get divorced for abandonment or abuse. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. So what are we to do then? What are you to do if you're in that situation? Again, let's go back to what is 100% clear. What is 100% clear is that you, as a citizen of a nation that has a government, that has authority and officials and laws, according to Romans chapter 13, you are instructed to not only submit yourself to that governing authority, but to allow yourself to be the beneficiary of the protection that they offer. What that means is, is that if you are in a situation where you are subject to the criminal act of abuse, then you are permitted by God and commanded by God to pursue whatever action you need in order to be able to protect yourself that the legal system that you live in provides for you. Secondly, what is also clear is that God's desire in every relationship, according to Matthew chapter 18, is that every relationship between people and especially between believers is that regardless of what breaks or distorts or hurts the relationship, God's desire has always been and will always be reconciliation and healing. And Matthew 18 provides instruction on how do I respond? What do I do when a Christian hurts me? When a Christian offends me? When a Christian wounds me? How do I handle that? And Jesus provides that instruction in Matthew 18. Here's what also is clear. That even though this can be a lot to swallow, and even though we live in a society, in a culture, where God just simply does not agree with how the culture views this issue. God is equal parts just and grace. What is clear when you read Ephesians chapter one is that God says that he has forgiven us of our sins past present and future. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, if you have been made spiritually alive, if there's been a moment in your life where you called out to Jesus, said, Jesus, I need you to forgive me of my sins, make me clean, make me whole, make me new. Ephesians chapter one makes it abundantly clear that all of our sins that we've ever done, ever can, or ever will do have been forever forgiven because of the blood of Jesus. This means that if divorce is a part of your story, if you got divorced maybe for a reason that's not included in scripture, if you've got remarried, even though you got divorced for something that's not included in scripture, if it is past, if it's done, if the eggs have already been scrambled, then hear clearly the word of God today, you are forgiven. You are not used goods you are not finished, and I'm not done writing your story. God's word says that when we trust in Christ, we become a new creation. 
old things, old headlines, old actions, old strongholds, old things that cause us to be ashamed have passed away. And in Christ, behold, all things have been made new. But what do we do from today moving forward? Well, there's a couple of other things that are abundantly clear. James 4, 17 tells us that if any believer knows what the right thing to do is and they don't do it, God calls it sin. Further, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, God says, shall you continue in sin? So you're here today and you go, okay, I hear what God's word says. I I understand there's a little bit of ambiguity in some parts, but there's some clarity on a lot of parts. And I'm going to, I know what the right thing to do is, but I'm going to do my own thing. What God says in that situation in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, shall we continue in sin? Shall I keep doing what I want to do, even though I know that Jesus has already died on the cross and paid for it? He says, shall you continue in sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. That's not how he intended for us to experience and use his grace. His grace is not supposed to be so that we can go do what we want to. And when the, when the heat gets turned up, when the, when the conviction comes on, we pull the get out of hell free card, which is our salvation and go, see God, you done forgave me for it. So I can do what I want to. All right, peace. Thanks. God's saying that's not how it works. You need to understand that if you move forward, whether it's in this issue or any issue, the things that you eat, the way that you talk about people, the things that you do that that affect your character and your integrity, the way that you love and serve and sacrifice other people, any issue, fill in the blank. When we sin in the future, we have to understand that we we don't do so so that we can just continue to use the grace of God when it's convenient. But that God's desire is that when we have experienced the grace of God, it changes us. And when we experience God's way, it redirects us. What you need to hear clearly today is that any sin that you commit in the future, you're not going to get kicked out of heaven. You're not going to lose your salvation. But you need to understand that an an overwhelming number of the promises that we find in God's word are conditional upon your obedience to his word. So when you and I choose to sin, here's what we do. We don't lose our seat in heaven. But we do disqualify ourselves from receiving some of the blessings that God had intended for us. And not only do we disqualify ourselves from experiencing those blessings, we also position ourselves to come under God's correction. And because God loves us, he will always, always, always meet us right where we are. But because he loves us so much, he won't let us stay that way. And so he will move and he will work and he will use his word to mold and to shape and to change who we are. I can be honest with you. I wish that this was a part of God's word that was different. 
I can't tell you how many times I've been in counseling, talking to couples, and someone says, I'm, I, I'm done, I've had it, I'm getting a divorce. And I know, based on what God's word says, that God would not be glorified in that decision. Yet I also know because of the hours in counseling how much hurt, how much pain, how much brokenness has been caused in this marriage. And where my head tells me I know what God's word says, my heart tells me, but God, how are they supposed to stay in that? These are the moments oftentimes where our faith is tried the most. When I can clearly read and see what God's word says, but everything inside of me hates what it says. I can tell you that I've been in situations where I've been so conflicted because I see the hurt and they've come to me asking, what does God's word say, pastor? And I have cried and I've begged to God, God, why did you write it that way? Time and time again, God says, because I'm God and you're not. Because I created you and I know how you operate. Because relationships and marriage were my idea. And these are the instructions and the user manual so that you can enjoy it the most. There's been times as a pastor where someone's come up to me, they're so happy and so excited. Pastor, we're getting married. Oh, we're so excited. Pastor, would you marry us? But I, I love being a part of that process. I've married two couples in the last two weekends and it's been such a joy for me. But there are times where I'm really conflicted because again, I know what God's word says and God says these are the conditions whereby someone can get married again after they've been divorced. By the way, one of the other conditions, if you have divorce in your story before Christ, you got divorced at some point before you even knew who Jesus was, before you got saved, and then you got saved and now you're wondering, can I be married? The answer according to 1 Corinthians 7 is yes. But as a pastor, I think sometimes people aren't fully able to appreciate that, that a pastor is not held accountable to the people. A pastor's not held accountable to the board. A pastor's not held accountable to any friends or family or loved ones when it comes to what they teach and how they make decisions off of what God's word teaches. That a pastor ultimately is held accountable to God and God alone. In fact, God's word says that I will, I will have a double accountability because I'm a teacher of the word. And so there are times when someone asks me, Pastor, can you marry us? When they don't meet the biblical qualifications of their divorce, therefore don't meet the biblical qualifications to be married again. It's, it's somebody that is saved that's trying to marry someone who's not saved. God's word is clear, don't do that. It's somebody who got divorced for one of the reasons that, that aren't included in the, the permissible uh, reasons that God gives and now they're trying to get married again. And That's one of the hardest no's I ever say. I can't do that. 
I'm sure that you can find somebody who's willing to, but I can't do that. I love you. I'm here for you. I'm praying for you. I will fight for your marriage once you get married. But according to God's word, I I can't in good conscience stand before God and pronounce God's blessings on this relationship that God's word has said violates his plan. Again, in those moments, I don't, I don't get embarrassed easy. I don't normally have a problem telling people no. But those are one of the few conversations where after I say no, I just want to crawl under the desk until they leave. And God says, I need you to trust me because I know about this thing way better than the world does. So let's take a big deep breath, exhale. I'm thankful that Jesus isn't scared to jump into the things that are in our everyday life. And I don't know what kind of church you're looking for, but we're not gonna be the kind of church that just tells you what you wanna hear. And I have labored and wrung my hands over and over and over again about this message and God has continually said, I said it. If they've got issues, have them come talk to me. Happy to do that, Jesus. Let's wrap this message up. Three more upgrades. Upgrade number four, Jesus speaks about oaths. Matthew 5, 33 says, again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I said, you do not swear at all. What's in view here is the book of Leviticus. God makes it clear, do not swear by my name. It was often, uh, common that sometimes when people were trying to make a point, they would, they would swear by God's name. Perhaps you're familiar with this idea when you're trying to prove a point or when someone doesn't believe you or they're skeptical, you might say something, I swear swear on my mama's grave, all right? What God is saying is don't swear by me. Mm-mm, don't you do it. So what people would do is they would find other things to swear by. I swear by the temple. I swear by Jerusalem. Jesus goes on to provide some other examples. He says, listen, don't do that. My people don't need to swear by something in order to be trustworthy, He goes on to say in verse 37, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Listen, if you are a type of person, if you are a follower of Jesus and you're the type of person where you constantly feel like you've got to rely on something else for people to believe you, man, I swear that's true. I swear on my mama's grave when I was a kid, I'd say crisscross applesauce, poke a needle in my eye. Jesus said, listen, if you're one of my people, Live in such a way that you don't have to swear by nothing. Be reliable. Be trustworthy. When you say you're going to do something, do it. Because if people have to wonder whether or not you're going to be reliable, what does that say about me? And in case anybody's wondering, Jesus says, I am the same Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last one who was and is and is to come. I'm here. I've always been here. I ain't going nowhere. I ain't changing. He would later say at the end of his Sermon on the Mount that I'm the rock that you can build your life on. He goes on in the next 
upgrade retaliation. In Leviticus 24, 17 and 21, um, Jesus quotes this, and this is a provision that God gives in the Levitical law about how judges are supposed to be able to um, exact justice and pour justice out on wrongdoing. And so Jesus quotes that, verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Can I just tell you this? When I was growing up, I heard this so much, I thought this was bogus. Growing up in middle school, high school, you know, you, you're a Christian kid, you get into a fight and turn the other cheek. Now, I was deeply con- conflicted because my dad was a Marine and my dad was like, boy, don't you dare turn that cheek. I'm like, well, which one is it, Jesus or dad? What Jesus is doing here, similar to what he did when he talked about adultery, plucked the eye out, chopped the hand off, he's providing an extreme example. And he's not saying, he's not providing conditions whereby you have to willingly subject yourself to the evil that someone else wants to do to you. That's not what he's saying here. But he is providing a little bit of an extreme. He provides a couple of other examples uh, a little bit further on. And what he's saying is, listen, what I need you to understand is that my people aren't trying to constantly bestow vigilante justice. Okay, y'all, y'all ain't Barney Fife running around, citizens arrest, citizens arrest. That's not how you operate because in that society, there is no room for grace. And if in every situation, every time you're in traffic, someone cuts you off and you have to tell them that they're number one. You're at work and one of your coworkers says something and you say some things that were in closed caption would be made by a lot of symbols. Listen, you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, listen, my people, you, you don't, don't live in such a way that you're constantly on the edge of everything, trying to make everything even and square. And when someone does something bad against you, you just boom, go right back against them. That's not how my people operate. And oh, by the way, that's not how I operate. Aren't you thankful that you don't get what you deserve every time you deserve it? Jesus said, listen, there needs to be some room for grace. He goes on to say, um, so what he's saying is, is he's trying to get across the idea, you need to look for opportunities to bestow grace on others. Grace is confusing to people. And in that grace, you demonstrate Jesus to people. And then lastly, and then we'll wrap it up, upgrade number six, Matthew 5 43, Jesus is going to address love. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. The rabbis would often teach what the law said, that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. What the rabbis would teach is they just assume that because God omits what to do with enemies, then we're just going to include our own thing. We're supposed to love our neighbor, then that means I can hate my enemy. Thank you very much. And that's how people were living. They were following the rabbi's teaching that you can love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And Jesus comes in and goes, what? Even the tax collectors, the worst among you, love their friends. What blessing is that to you? How is that a benefit to you? He goes on and he says, listen, you need to understand that even God bestows what theologians call common grace upon all people. Jesus talks about that in verse 45. He says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good 
He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's saying, listen, it doesn't matter who the farmer is or how bad he is. The sun's coming up and going down. The rain is coming and it's going for the good and the bad because they're people, because God created them in his image. And he loves them because Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you you need, yes, love your neighbor, but love your enemy as well. When they accuse you and abuse you, pray for them, serve them, bless them. And don't just try to hate them and piggyback on what they're doing. Again and again and again, what Jesus is doing in these six upgrades is he is bypassing the debates over the actions in order to get to the root of the problem, which is the heart. This is so critical for us to understand today. Whether, you, whether you're like, man, that's the greatest message ever, that's the worst message ever, none of that applies to me, or holy cow, that applies to me big time. What you have to understand what Jesus is doing in his manifesto is he is demonstrating and illustrating again and again and again that his kingdom is inside out. He would later say in Mark chapter seven that what it comes out of a man is what defiles a man. From within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All of these things are evil. And all of these things come not from outside of the person, from inside. And it's not so much what you do with your hands or where your feet lead you. It's not so much what you see with your eyes or what you say with your mouth or how you act or behave in this situation or that that defiles you. No, you need to understand that it's what's on the inside that defiles you. Proverbs says that we're to guard our hearts because out of our hearts flow all of the issues of life. So what do we need to know today? 2,000 years later, recorded for us in the word of God, we're reading it on a mild July day. You've been here since we started our church or you're here today for the very first time. What is it that God has for you today? And I believe that it's this. Yes, Jesus cares about what you do externally. But he is obsessed with who you are internally. And if you would trust him, not just with the external, but you would trust him with your heart with your soul, then you'll begin to see that as Jesus transforms your heart, then he will transform your life. I talk to so many people that are trying to change something, change your relationship, change your habit, change your trajectory. 
And so we establish goals and, 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 and ideas and, 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 um, and resolutions and we make lists and we do all those things. And, and, and at the end of the day, so many of us try to change something in our lives by behavior modification, by controlling the variables, by saying, I can do this. I can. I can do this. I'm going to quit smoking this time. I'm going to quit looking at pornography. That's the last time. I'm going to, I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better mom. I'm going to be better for my employees. I'm going to be a better boss. I'm going to be a better son. And we clench our fists and we grit our teeth and we try to, we try to self-determine and self-will and say, yes, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. But as we sang earlier today, you're not enough. I can promise you that whatever the change is that you're looking to make, your best chance of success is when you surrender your heart to Jesus. and Say, Jesus, would you change what's on the inside of me so that the external stuff can begin to change as well? At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.